Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. That sounded wonderful. I've been asking for Paul to sing that song for four, five years now. Oh, okay. All right. Awesome. That was wonderful. Praise God. Good to see you. My name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, open it to Psalm 100 is where we are this morning. We have finished a uh, several-month journey through the Sermon on the Mount. And last Sunday, we took a pause to look at Ephesians 2 for Easter Sunday and to revel in the glory of the resurrection. But as we, as we mentioned last Sunday, really every Sunday here is Resurrection Sunday. And so again, even though the subject may change to some degree, the, the point is still the same, that we're going to talk about the glory of the gospel this morning. Now today, and for the next couple Sundays, we're going to do some standalone messages. Uh, and then uh, in late April, we're going to pick back up in a new uh, book that we're going to work through, likely an Old Testament book. The, the kind of the front runner right now, uh, we're still sort of praying through wh- where we're going to go, but the front runner is probably Daniel chapters 1 through 6, which are particularly helpful for Christians engaged in a uh, fallen culture, so we might think about that. But if you're new, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad that you're here, but I want you to know that what we're doing this morning is a bit unusual. It's more of a topical message rather than working through a book of the Bible, which is our custom usually. In fact, 95% of the time we just take a book of the Bible and just work our way through it. We think God wrote the Bible. We think it's completely true. We think it has all authority. And we think that's the best way uh, that that we should gather as worship around God's work. We're just sequentially working through it. However, this morning uh, we think it would be wise for us to pause for a moment and to think about an aspect of the church and what we are doing when we gather together, in a sense, to sort of preach and teach on a theology of what should take place, what is taking place, and the importance of what's taking place when the church gathers to worship. And to do that, to start off, we're going to look at Psalm 100. Now, I'm going to read Psalm 100, and then we're going to be all over the Bible. In fact, Psalm 100, in a sense, is, is really just a kind of springboard for us to look at what the Bible as a whole says about what the church should do and how they should do it when they gather. So with that, let me read Psalm 100 and I'll pray and ask the Lord to help us with our gathering this morning. If you are uh, a believer in Jesus, I pray that your heart would be warmed. I pray that you would hear truth that that what we think about today would stir your affections for the beauty of the gospel so that you would worship God more passionately, not just with your either Sunday morning, but with your whole life. And if you are not yet a believer in Jesus, even though today may feel a bit kind of like a, a family discussion about, about coming together to worship, ultimately today you're going to hear words of life about what God has done in Christ. And I pray that your heart would be melted And that God, by his sovereign grace, would give you the very thing that he requires of you. That he would give you faith. That you wouldn't be drawn to look within yourself. But maybe for the first time, you would look outside of yourself to a Savior who alone 
can make you right with your creator God. So with that, let me pray. Or let me read Psalm 100 and then we'll pray. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Now before I pray, I want to give you the goal of today. We're going to put it up on the screen. In fact, there's going to be lots of notes, lots of scriptures. So buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be, we're going to about to jump on the interstate and we might get pulled over for speeding a little bit, okay? But here's the goal, the thing that I want to impress upon our hearts this morning in this phrase, come into his presence. Think about that, that God has written to one of his psalmists that we, he's commanded that we as his people are to come into his presence. And in fact, That is what we are made for, to be with God and to worship and enjoy Him forever. In fact, whenever I say that, you Presbyterians, a few of you that are in this crowd, you get excited because you hearken back to your Westminster Confession of Faith. Question number one, what is the chief end of man? To enjoy God and, or to worship God and, I didn't grow up like you did, to (laughs) worship God and enjoy Him forever Well, we, in a sense, all of our life, we know all of our life is worship, to be oriented towards displaying the goodness and mercy of God. And certainly that's the case, and I don't want to minimize that at all. But this morning, I want us to zero down in on what we are specifically doing when we gather together as a a corporate body. Corporate, you know that word. I'm not talking about IBM or GE. I'm talking about as the church gathered together. And so... Here's, the, here's what I want you to see up front before I pray. When Crosspoint gathers, we want our worship, our gathered worship to be God-focused, Christ-exalting, Spirit-empowered, Gospel-centered, Bible-saturated, and affection-stirring. We want those Phrases to characterize what happens when we gather together as God's people, as this tiny little expression of the great grand universal body of Christ. So with that, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we, as we gather this morning, as we sing, as we pray, as we read scripture, as we preach and teach, as we respond, as we on this first Sunday of the month come to the table and receive communion, we confess our utter need and dependence on you. Help us, Lord. Help us to see rightly about what your Bible, what your word teaches about how your people should gather. And Lord, for unbelievers in this room, we, we pray for you to do what only you can do. Even as Teddy, at the beginning of service in our call to worship, pray that you, God, would give them eyes to see so that they would be saved and trust in Christ. 
And Lord, as we think about our local church, we are very aware that we are just one tiny little speck in the great, grand, universal body of Christ all around this world. So we thank you for the, the, the churches, the sister churches all around the world and all around our nation, and in particular in our city that are gathering today. We thank you for Winbrook Baptist Church, and I thank you for my friend Craig Bowers there, the new pastor. I pray that you would bless him as he delivers your word this morning. Thank you for him. I thank you for Christ Community Church and Keith Cowart. I pray that you would bless the gathering of your people there. Lord, I pray for the churches downtown, that you would give your grace to them and that your word would be preached in those pulpits. Lord, we thank you for uh, the Presbyterian churches and the Methodist churches and the Pentecostal churches. Your people are scattered abroad in every different expression of your church. I pray for them that your grace would resound from the pulpits. Believers would be encouraged and unbelievers would be born again. Do that even here, Lord, as we think about worship. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So to do this, to look at a biblical theology of worship and what it means to come into God's presence, we need to start in the Old Testament. So The first thing that I want us to consider is gathered worship in the Old Testament. Now, in order to understand what's going on from the beginning of time until now, we need to understand what happened in the garden. So God creates all things that are, are, he creates the world and everything in it. Mankind, Adam and Eve fall, and we are excommunicated. Because we are sinners, we we are banished from God's presence and really not able to worship him rightly, but God at that moment begins his restoration project. And he, at the very beginning, after the fall, begins to work to to gather a people back to himself so that his people might rightly worship him again. And eventually God creates through one man, Abraham, a nation called Israel. And he gives Israel very specific instructions on how they are to worship him. And, And The reason that he wants Israel as a nation in the Old Testament to worship him rightly is not just because he loves Israel, but because through Israel he is going to display his glory to all the nations so that Israel becomes a kind of picture of what it means to know God and worship him so that other nations would be drawn to worship God as well. So in a sense... God is using his people to be the means through their worship to be the means by which he draws other people into a right relationship, a restored, a reconciled relationship with him. Well, his nation Israel finds themselves in captivity because of their sin and rebellion. And at the beginning of the second book of the Bible, Exodus, they are in captivity by in, in Egypt. And then God raises up a man named Moses, and he says to this man Moses, he says, go to the Pharaoh and tell him that I am going to, through your hand, free these people so that they may worship me. Or the word he uses is serve me. And so we see in the book of Exodus in the early chapters that over and over and over again, God tells Moses 
to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may serve me. In fact, let me just read very quickly uh, several verses. We could read about 15, but we'll just read four. Exodus 3, verse 12, God said, he said, but I will be with you, speaking to Moses, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. A couple chapters later, Exodus 7, verse 16. And you shall say to him, speaking to Moses again about what he shall say to Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But as for you, but so far you have not obeyed. Exodus 8, verse 1. It's almost verbatim. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Exodus 9, verse 1, one chapter later, again, verbatim. Then the Lord God said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. And when God is using this word serve, it means really, in essence, worship. But it's not just you know, singing songs, it is bound up in this word serve, is really bound up in what God told Adam in the Garden of Eden before the fall. He said in Genesis 2 that you were to till the ground, you were to subdue creation and to be my steward over it. In other words, you are, as a man, before the fall, to work, to worship me by working, by serving. In other words, You were created for me. That's what he says to mankind. I'm not here for you. And so bound up in this idea of worship is this idea of serving God. In fact, that's why when we gather, we call what we are doing here a service. Have you ever thought about that? We, you went to the church service. Well, bound up in that is this idea that we are serving God. God, and that's what's happening in the Old Testament. Well, then, after God does rescue his people from Egypt, he gives them a law. He gives them a very specific law, and this law is a very, a very detailed description of how his people can rightly enter his presence. Because remember, mankind is fallen. God has rescued a people for himself, but people are still wicked. People are still unrighteous. People are still rebellious. And God gives his people at Mount Sinai through Moses a very specific, detailed instruction on how they are to worship him. And this instruction included, it included sacrifices about how God's people were to sacrifice animals to atone for their sin yearly and monthly and daily even on cases. And it not only included sacrifices, it included specific people who were to administer these sacrifices. These were called priests in the Old Testament. And not only did it include sacrifices and people called priests, it included specific Places like the tabernacle when Israel was wandering through the desert. And then finally when Israel finds itself in the promised land. 
Again, through God's miraculous leading, they build a temple. And so what I want you to see is that God prescribes in the Old Testament how his people are to worship him. And in fact, redemption of his people, the goal of the redemption of his people is in fact worship. Remember, he's saying, I'm going to free my people from captivity so that they can serve me. And then the way in the Old Testament that God's people were to serve him was bound up in these sacrifices, these priests, these mediators, and these places, the tabernacle and the temple. And that is worship in the Old Testament. It's restricted to specific people, to specific places, and to specific times. And all of that is meant to lead us to the second point that I want us to see, that all of that is fulfilled in Christ. Old Testament worship is not just kind of a strange little, you know, beginning to God's desire for his people to worship him, but all of these Old Testament sacrifices and all of these Old Testament priests and all of these Old Testament places that were very specific instructions about how God's people were to worship him were all pointing to something. They were all kind of shadows that were pointing to this reality that is fulfilled and personified in Christ. In fact, that's what Jesus says in the Gospels himself. Remember a very well-known verse in Luke chapter 24. We won't have it up on the screen, but this is after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And he has resurrected from the grave He is not yet ascended, and in Luke chapter 24, he appears to two disciples walking on the road to this place called Emmaus. He obscures his true identity so that they can't quite see who he is at that moment. He saddles up next to them and asks them what they're thinking about and talking about, and they said, well, we were following this one who we thought was the the Redeemer of Israel, and you know, he's dead now, and so I guess we're just kind of going back to work. And Jesus in Luke chapter 24 Midway through that chapter says, oh, you slow of heart to believe all that the prophet, in other words, all that the Old Testament was speaking about, the law and the prophets. In other words, the whole Old Testament is speaking about me, Jesus was telling them. And so in Christ, all of what the Old Testament was in a temporary way pointing to was Jesus. So now there is no longer need for a sacrificial system because Jesus is the one true better sacrifice, right? There's no longer need for priests to be the single intermediary between us and God because Jesus is our high priest, right? And now there's no longer a need for us to build a tabernacle or temple that is in itself just because it's that place holy because now Jesus is the true and better temple. So let's see this in the text. Jesus is the true tabernacle. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, the Bible says this about Jesus. And the word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt there more literally means tabernacled with us. So Jesus is He is like the the true tabernacle as we wander through the desert. Worship is located now not in a specific place, 
but in the person of Jesus. Jesus is now not just the tabernacle, but he is the temple. A couple, one chapter later in John chapter 2, verse 19 through 22, Jesus is chastising the people for making his temple a, a place where people would buy and sell goods and not be focusing on God. And in verse 19, Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken them. So Jesus is telling us in this text that the temple in the Old Testament that God very specifically commanded his people to build And the tabernacle before that, that God very specifically told his people to construct, were temporary aspects of worship meant to point to the true tabernacle, the true temple, which is Jesus. Well, what about the sacrifices? Jesus even says, all of those sacrifices are pointing to me. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7. Now, these verses are so rich, I'm going to, it's going to be hard not to shadow box as I'm reading them. They're so good. Hebrews 7, verse 26 through 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. This is speaking of Jesus. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests in the Old Testament, to offer sacrifices daily, First for his own sins and then for the sins of the, for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So do you see that? The Old Testament, God is very specific. He's saying that there is a sacrifice that you must make to come into my presence. Because I'm holy and you're not. And he's saying that there are certain people that are going to be separated to make these sacrifices, and those are priests. Because even though they're still messed up, they're at least a little bit more sanctified than you sorry cats, right? But now those, that place, that sacrifice, and the people, and even the place that they offer that sacrifice, was a temporary marker meant to point us to the true tabernacle, the true temple, the true priest, the true sacrifice, Jesus, right? And so then later on in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, the author writes this, Therefore, brothers, in verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. That's what it means to worship. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So this whole Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus who becomes the center. He becomes the the place in which God's people truly worship. That doesn't mean that we just forget the Old Testament. We learn from the principles and the character of God that the Old Testament shows us. But all of it is pointing to Jesus who becomes the true and better sacrifice and priest and temple for us. That's why Jesus, we won't take the time to read it, 
But that's why Jesus, in John chapter 4, remember that exchange that he has with the woman at the well there in John chapter 4? And uh, he really just kind of looks into her heart and he knows her life because Jesus is not just man, he is God. And he asks her how many husbands she has. And he's like, well, I got a couple. He's like, I know how many husbands. In fact, I know everything about you. And then he's calling her to worship him in a sense. And this woman says she is a Samaritan. She is not a a full-blooded Jew. And she says, well, your people worship God on this mountain in Jerusalem. And my people can't. And Jesus, oh, there's coming a time when God is seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. Now, many people in the church look at that verse and they think it means that what it means is we've got to you know, we got to have a little bit more juice. You know, we got to be a little bit more charismatic, or we got to raise our hands, or we got to do this or that. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Although I'm not against any of that stuff, I think it could be good if that's your personality. What Jesus is saying is that true worship is worship that is in spirit and truth. In other words, the Spirit of God has now opened up a new and living way in our hearts as we trust in the true priest, Jesus, and now we are worshiping God in Christ, who is truth, empowered by his spirit. So what Jesus is saying in John 4 is not be, not not run around the sanctuary with tambourines. He's saying, locate your worship, not in an Old Testament shadow or in an exterior form, but in me. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that is the acceptable worship that God now commands his people to, to, uh, to offer to him. Now just a, a few just implications before we move on to gather worship in the New Testament. This means, friends, this is such good news. Herein is the gospel. This means that all of God's people have access to God through Christ. It means that we are not now bound by some external work that we must do year after year. We are now not second class citizens. There is no JV. Nobody plays on Thursday nights. All who are in Christ have access to God the Father. There's not a place that we have to go. There's not a specific sacrifice that we have to offer. There is not a person specifically that we need to go to other than Christ. Friends, this is the gospel. And why can we rightly worship God in Christ? Not just because God had this really descriptive Old Testament and ah, it didn't work. So let me shake the etch-a-sketch and send Jesus to be a great example of love. And now, okay, okay, boys and girls, I'm going to be a little bit softer now. Now I'll come to me. That's not the picture. The picture is all of these sacrifices in the Old Testament are illuminating the unworthiness of people to enter into God's holy presence. And all of these sacrifices were just temporary measures to point us to the only true sacrifice that could really satisfy God's justice and holiness and wrath. And that is the unblemished, unstained, perfect, eternally holy, righteous Son of God, Jesus. So friends, this is the gospel. Don't miss this. As we're talking about worship, this is the gospel. That to enter into God's presence, which is the reason that you were created, must and can only come through Jesus and what he has done 
on the cross to bear the wrath of a holy God, absorb it, extinguish it, satisfy it, remove it, so that now those who put their hope and faith not in themselves, not in their own relative righteousness, which is like filthy rags, the Bible says, but in Christ, who is the gate, the door, the one through whom and the only one through whom we can rightly worship God and have our sins atoned. So that now, when we come through Jesus, listen to this, don't miss this, when we come through Jesus, we are coming through his righteousness because we cannot enter the holiness of God in our own sinful state. And what it means to be a Christian is not to be sinless or perfected in this life, but it means that we are putting our hope in Jesus who was righteous for us and who bore the wrath of God's sin for us and removed it so that now we can come in his name, justified, adopted, sanctified, glorified in Christ. Yes, we've got a lot of catching up to do. That's the rest of the Christian life. That's sanctification. But at the moment of trust in Jesus, his righteousness is given to us The punishment for our sin is taken away and we now stand before God because we are in Christ, able to worship God in Christ. That's worship in the Old Testament fulfilled in Christ in the new. This means then, just a couple little rabbit trails here. This means that there should be no divisions racially amongst God's people. There is no... There is no like ethnic group. Even God taking the ethnic Jews and forming a nation through them was a temporary picture. He would even invite the Gentiles to come be part of his people. And now God is, is, is moving this group of people along so that in Christ, all those, all those, the mission of God to form an ethnic people in the Old Testament is meant so that through them all the nations would come to him. And now in Christ, there is nothing separating us. There are only, I say it so often, there are only two types of people in this world. There aren't black people and brown people and white people. There are only two types of people in this world. Those who are outside of Christ and unable to worship him rightly and those who are in Christ who can, because of Christ, worship him rightly. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is only one in, we are all one in Christ Jesus. There are no second class citizens in the body of Christ. If you are in Christ, you have all that there is to have. That doesn't mean that we don't need to grow in Christ. But it means that if you are in Christ, you are not a second-class citizen. You don't need to come in the back door. You don't need to sneak in with your tail between your legs. You, if you are in Christ, you have full access, not based on your level of spirituality, but on Christ's, right? When I was a kid, um, we used to, I don't know if I want to tell this because my kids may get an idea, but every now and again, my brother and I would sneak out and do some stuff. And we had a doggy door, a doggy door in our back door, you know, one of those little flaps that the dog would come in and out. And when we would come back maybe a little later than we should, rather than coming in the front door, 
so as to alarm my parents, and my dad was always up watching Johnny Carson anyway, we would reach our hand through because the doors were always locked, and we would reach underneath through the doggy door, unlock the back door, and sneak upstairs, right? Never worked, never worked, so don't try it. It never worked. (laughs) But isn't that how many Christians live? You think that you have to sneak in the back door and reach through the doggy door because, maybe because, you don't rightly understand the implications and the glory of the gospel that if you believe should free you from yourself so that you can come in boldly before the throne of grace, not because of your righteousness, but because of Jesus's, right? And when you behold that and when you apprehend that, just seeing that rightly will inevitably cause you to, with more vigor and more zeal, fight the very sin that causes you to feel condemned. Right? It doesn't, seeing God rightly never leaves us in that state. We always have zeal to fight our sin and become more and more the man or the woman that God has called us to be. Okay, that's fulfillment in Christ. Then, Point number three, what does gathered worship look like in the New Testament? Well, whereas in the Old Testament, all of these very specific prescriptions were temporary and fulfilled in Jesus, we see a lot less prescription and just pictures of certain elements that seem to be essential, much more, in a sense, freedom. Because now God's instruction isn't bound up in one civil society, meaning the ethnic Jews, but it now is to cross cultural barriers. And we see much more, uh, less prescription and more generalities, but very clear elements that should be part of worship in the New Testament. And I think it centers on the Bible, which is the revelation of what God has done in Christ on the cross. So, a few aspects that we see about gathered worship in the New Testament. First, is we see that the Bible should be read. We should read the Bible when we gather. A few verses. Paul writes to Timothy, a young pastor, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 13. He says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So, you notice, if you notice... I hope you notice that one of the things that we want to do at Crosspoint very regularly, and we want to make it center, is we want to read the Bible. We read the Bible at the beginning of the service. We read the Bible in the middle of the service. We preach the Bible. That's why I'm not doing it today. This is more of a topical message. But that's why we work through books of the Bible primarily. It's called expositional preaching. What does that word mean? It means, think about that word, exposition. We want to expose ourselves to God's word, not to the preacher's hobby horses, right? Because I've got some. I've got some hobby horses. And given to my own devices, that's what I'd give you. But you can't grow on my hobby horses. But you can grow on God's word, right? So we are to read the Bible. The Bible has power. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul's talking to the Thessalonians and he says, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. 
The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we believe that the more we expose ourselves to the word of God, that it has power to do things that our feeble words can never ultimately do. So we want to read the Bible. Not only do we want to read the Bible, secondly, we want to pray the Bible when we gather. Paul says again to Timothy in that same 1 Timothy letter in chapter 2, verse 1, instructing him about corporate gathered worship. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So we want to pray for God's grace on various people, and that's not all that we pray for. Thanksgiving, a helpful thing for God's people to do is to pray to use his psalm book and to use that as a guide for our prayers corporately. We want to pray God's words back to him. We want prayers that are guided and informed by the content of God's word. So when I say pray the Bible, that doesn't mean that we have to uh, wrote, read a portion of scripture as a prayer exclusively, but it means that our prayers should be informed by the content of the Bible. Not only do we want to pray the Bible, but thirdly, in our gathered worship in the New Testament, we want to sing the Bible. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians in chapter 5, verses 18 through 19. He says, do not get drunk with wine, with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Then in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, writing a very similar thing to another church in Colossae, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. So we should, when we gather, not only read the Bible, pray the Bible, but we should sing the Bible. Now let me pause here. And I thank God for the grace that we have. We have a wonderful worship team in our church. And we also have a very, you, you guys never complain about, even if you're, even if you're, I'm sure you are. I mean, come on, we're humans. We're maybe we, certain aspects of whatever in the life of the church. We don't like Brad should preach shorter, all this kind of stuff. I, I get that. But we, we, we just, just a, a wonderful spirit of unity in our church. But in many churches, songs and style of music is often a real point of contention. And I thank God that, that we just really haven't had any of that in our 11 year history as a, as a church. Now, I realize that for some people in this room, maybe the majority of the style of music that we might sing generally might not be in your groove, so to speak, right? But even by the way that we come in and participate in the singing of the truths of God's Word, even if it's not our style, is in a way worshiping God because we are choosing not to prefer ourselves and our preferences and we are considering others better than ourselves. Now that's a two-way street, obviously. I think we, and I think our worship, we have grown as worship leaders to think about how we can think about different types. We want to sing hymns. We want to sing hymns that are 400 years old, and we want to sing songs that were just written this year, and we want to do different genres, and we're always struggling to get better at that. But if 
The sung word in this church is not exactly your preference. We understand that. But let me encourage you as your pastor and under-shepherd to not let that develop in you a root of grumpiness that will absolutely take you out, hinder what's going on in this room, and cause you to be a not-so-great witness for the cause of Christ in our gathering. Amen? Amen. I love you. <laughs> Notice also that we, when we sing, that we want to sing songs that are theologically rich and driven by the truths of the Bible. The, just a little word here. Maybe I, maybe I offended the old crowd. I'm going I'm to offend the young crowd on this one. There are lots of worship songs, modern day worship songs, put out by bands that are super gifted. And notice how all the people are beautiful on stage, you know, they just look good. But they have as much theology in them as that post. And they are unhealthy. And sometimes, some of you will ask Paul, hey, let's sing this song because it's good and it plays on the radio and it gives you goosebumps. But it, will, it is theologically anemic. And so we don't sing songs that are theologically devoid of any truth just because they sound good and they give me goosebumps. I love you. <laughs> so we sing the Bible. Third, fourthly, we preach the Bible. Come on, this goes without saying. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is one of the most important verses in my life. And if you are a young man that desires to be in pastoral ministry, you should consume this paragraph. Second Timothy chapter four, verse one, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I remember that quote from the old Scottish pastor, William Steele, in his book called The Work of the Pastor. He says, don't entertain goats. Let goats entertain goats out in goat land. Feed the sheep God's word, even if they don't want to be fed. That means that the ultimate goal of my ministry and the other pastor's ministry in this church is to not teach and preach in a way that will be a hook for you so that we can grow our church numerically. We love souls and we want it to grow numerically, but not at the cost of faithfulness. Our task is to simply be mailmen, messengers of what God has said and what God does with his word, rightly taught, humbly delivered, is his business. If it means that this congregation in years to come, thank God this isn't the way it is, but if that means... If a great host of people start to want to accumulate for themselves their own teachings to suit their own passions, and it causes this church to dwindle, then so be it. 
The goal of a preacher of God's word is not security financially by the number of people coming to his church. If this place tanks and I'm still being faithful, I'll go get a job. I mean, I have a job now. Don't act like preachers don't work only one day, but on Sunday. Don't give me that. I knew that's what you were thinking. I'll go get another job to the glory of God. Preach the word. All right. Relax, Brad. Let me, let me exhale here for a second. And then finally, gathered worship in the New Testament. We read the word, we pray the word, we sing the word, we preach the word, and then we see the word. We see the Bible. How do we see the Bible? And I'm not just talking about having the Bible open in our laps, although that is a good thing to do, right? Don't rely on the screen. Open God's word for yourself. It becomes a wonderful tool for your soul, right? Open God's word for yourself, follow along. But what I'm talking about when I say see the Bible or see the word, I'm talking about the right practice of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And Jesus gives those two ordinances, those two those two uh, functions, those two things that the church should do when they gather regularly to be a picture of the gospel that the Bible is ultimately about. So when we are baptizing a brother or sister on a Sunday morning, we are in a sense seeing the gospel acted out. We're seeing the main point of what the Bible's message is. And this morning on the first Sunday of the month, when we come together to take the bread and the cup, it's not just a church tradition or something that we do. We are with our eyes and with our mouth seeing and beholding and consuming visible pictures of the gospel, which is what the Bible is all about. So we see the word, we see the gospel displayed through baptism and communion. Now, one little side note there on communion. You remember a couple, about a month or two ago before Robert and I went to India, I mentioned to you that we as pastors for some time have been wrestling with the way that we do communion here at Crosspoint. And for many years, really, we've been at church. Now, April 17th, by the way, this April 17th will be our 11th anniversary as a church. Oh, praise God. The Lord's been good to us. Yeah, amen. That was weak sauce, man. Whatever, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I don't know. I'm just, I'm being silly. And really, since the beginning of Cross Point, we've had, we've taken communion together as a church on the first Sunday of the month intentionally, congregationally. And then the rest of the Sundays of the month, we've just kind of left it up to individual response. Now, we've really wrestled with it. I think I have led poorly in that through the years. And if you have um, if responded in other weeks other than the first Sunday of the month and have come down, I'm not saying you've been doing anything wrong. In fact, I think you've been out of a right sense of wanting to connect with God, you know, and, and contemplate the gospel on those um, other than the first Sundays of the month, you've really just followed my lead. I think to actually biblically, as we've wrestled with this, that communion should be practiced 
as a body, it's something that the whole church does. It's not really so much of an individual response, although there's certainly individual benefit that we receive when we come to the Lord's table, but it's something that we should do together as a congregation. And so from really this point moving forward, this Sunday moving forward, we're going to start doing communion just on the first Sunday of the month, and that's it. We contemplated about doing it every Sunday intentionally as a congregation or just on the first Sunday of the month. There's really pros and cons either way. We've decided to do it on the first Sunday of the month, and we think that will be a good rhythm for us as a church. And really, in the other Sundays, we want our Sundays at the end of our service, at the end of God's Word being preached and prayed and read and sung, We want there to be a time of response. One thing that I long to see in our gathered worship is is maybe more response to God's word. Maybe more people just just moving to a space in the room, whether it's here down front. Not that, again, there's no special anointing or anything down here, right? Because remember, it's not about a tabernacle or a temple or a place. It's about Christ, right? But I pray that there would be maybe more, just more response in some way to God's word. I I pray that every Sunday when we end our services, that if you have something that you need to be prayed for, come down and let one of the pastors pray for you. Not because we have some special juice card, but we want to know, we want to shepherd our people well, right? And we we don't want there to be any barriers to that. But again, we're not just the people that have the prayer card, right? Let's not, let's, let's, we are all the priests. Remember, we are, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, Peter says in in 1 Peter. So if you know somebody to, that, 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 that you want to just go, let's pray for one another. Let's encourage one another as we respond to God's word. Okay, enough of that. Well, I talked a lot about the Bible. Some of you may be saying, well, Brad, what about the Holy Spirit? Well, friends, remember when we talk about, we want our, our worship to be spirit-empowered. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, works alongside the word of God to illuminate the work of God in his son. Don't pit the Holy Spirit against the Bible. The Holy Spirit loves the Bible. He wrote it, right? Don't pit them against one another. Right understand, right reading and praying and singing and preaching and seeing of the Bible can only happen rightly as it is empowered by the Holy Spirit who gives us life. Amen? And just one little word before we end this, and I give you just four very quick convictions about gathered worship. A word about prioritizing worship. In Hebrews 10, a couple verses past where we read just a second ago, it says in verse 24 and 25, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I think one of the weaknesses of the American church in general is that we are a people that have so many options. We are so busy and we have so many other priorities that oftentimes the worship of God, which is the very thing that we were created for, and yes, I know all of life is worship. I get that. But there's something powerful and primary about, in fact, the Hebrew says that, don't neglect this gathering of God, this regular gathering of God's people. We have so many priorities and so many options that oftentimes the prioritized regular, regular gathering to worship with 
your church family, our church family, God's people, is minimized. And it falls somewhere mid on the list. Hobbies. Football. I can see it. At fall, I love, I love football. I was a son of a football coach. I, I, I love football. I have a bobblehead of Vince Lombardi in my office. <laughs> but I can see it in the fall. Men come in here half asleep because they prioritize football over the right worship of God. I love you. (laughs) Four convictions about gathered worship. Let's land this plane. We gather to serve God and others before ourselves. Right? Remember that word service. We flip that in our culture. We come saying, what can God and this church and these people and these leaders do for me? If you are a believer in Jesus... Flip that paradigm on its head and realize that God has called his people. He has redeemed them from captivity so that they can serve him in the land. Secondly, we balance gladness and gravity. Another weakness of American worship in general is that it sort of checks reality at the door and expects everybody to be happy all the time. But if you read God's hymn book to his people in the Old Testament, there are multiple songs of lament. Psalm 13 is, it starts off with, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? That's a song that God's people were to sing in corporate worship. And it it is irrational for us to act like lament is not part of the valid Christian experience, right? And so when we come in here and we act like everybody's got to be happy and good looking and in a good mood, we betray the reality of the human experience. And God doesn't do that in his Bible. He accounts for the tragedy and the pain and the confusion of life. Now, I'm not saying we come in here just moping around and all we do is sing Psalm 13. But we balance our corporate worship. She be a mixture of gravity and gladness. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says in 2 Corinthians that we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Thirdly, we seek to edify and evangelize. Have you ever heard this dichotomy that, oh, that church is really good at evangelism, but they're not very good at discipleship? Or maybe put the other way, that church is really good at discipleship, but they're not very good at evangelism? I think that is a false Tension. In fact, I would conclude that if a church is really, is, is really good at evangelism, but they're not very good at discipleship, then they're not really good at evangelism if they're not producing disciples. And if they're really good at discipleship, but not good at evangelism, they're not really doing discipleship right because it doesn't produce a desire to be drawn to Christ, right? 
So they go hand in hand. And this is the beauty when God's people gather. There are people in this room who have been Christians for 40 or 50 years. And our desire when we gather is for our corporate gatherings to encourage people who know the Bible well as they exalt in the glory of the gospel. But to do it in an intelligible but beautiful, passionate way so that the unbeliever is drawn to the beauty and the clarity of the gospel. And we do that not by dubbing down the reality of God's word, but by being utterly clear about it so that God will do what he determines to do with his word, right? So we, I think I understand the impulse, but the seeker-sensitive movement of the 80s and 90s, I think, although well-intended, was misguided, the way that I, should, I could try and uh, convince a young man to be married is not to distance myself from my wife and say, well, you know, it's kind of helpful. It's very pragmatic. You know, we, one benefit of being married is that we can file our taxes jointly on April 15th. It's really helpful. And that's kind of the, the underlying sentiment of the seeker sensitive movement. This is how God will help you. Because we feel like if we're so passionate about God, it might drive people away. But when people see God's people burning afresh with a love for God, they will be drawn or they will not be drawn. In fact, that's what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And that's up to God. Listen to this. Verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity is commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. What's Paul saying there? He's saying don't act a certain way to draw unbelievers and then act another way to, draw, to, to edify believers. It's not put on the seeker-sensitive cologne so it'll smell good to these people, but when you're with your family, put on the Jesus cologne. No, he's saying that we are the aroma of Christ as people who have been transformed by the gospel. And we come together to passionately worship God in Christ and God will do what God will do with the gathering of his people as they rightly uphold Jesus. And I end with this. Our theology should lead to doxology. What do I mean by that? Theology is the right study of God and his character and his ways and what he has done. And doxology is a word that means the right worship and response to God. Good theology should always lead to doxology. The right study of God, the right doctrine of God, should lead to the worship of God, right? Theology that does not lead to doxology is dead orthodoxy. It's traditionalism and it will dry up the human soul and result in legalism. It is truth for the sake of truth that doesn't stir and melt the heart. 
Now, doxology, the worship of God, that is not informed by theology, slips into idolatry. Because it's just worship that's not informed by who God really is according to his revealed word. And when man doesn't have a picture of who God is, he slips into unbiblical pictures of who God is. So worship of God without the right understanding of God turns into idolatry. Theology should tune us into doxology, right? And that's the last point there that we get is that the cross points worship should be affection stirring. Let's put those back up there. When Crosspoint gathers, we want our worship to be God-focused, Christ-exalting, Spirit-empowered, Gospel-centered, Bible-saturated, and affection-stirring. We want our corporate worship to be a place of such beauty and Christ-centeredness that it edifies the believer and draws the unbeliever. J.I. Packer, an old British theologian, says that theology that cannot be sung is bad theology. The guy, Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian of the 1700s, who everybody thinks was this stoic guy that wrote that one sermon, When Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, He wrote a whole book called The Religious Affections about how a right understanding of God should produce in us affectionate worship, soul-stirring worship. So let's be a church that does that to the glory of God. I'm going to pray, and as I'm praying, ushers, if you would come forward and be prepared to serve us as we come to the Lord's table. Father, may we be a people so consumed by the beauty of the gospel that our weak and wounded and calloused hearts are renewed and refreshed again and again when we gather together. May men in this room lead their families in showing up on time, having their Bibles open, having their mouths open, having their hearts tuned into your word. And may your Holy Spirit create such a culture in the gathered worship of this church that it stirs the soul of the believer who's been a believer for decades and simultaneously draws unbelievers who see the beauty of the aroma of Christ among us, not dumbed down but clearly expressed. And would you use our corporate worship week after week to draw people who came in dead in their sins, whose hearts were as cold as ice, would you use it to melt their hearts of ice and give them a new heart so that they might see and savor Jesus and worship him too? Lord, would you do this for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people, and for the salvation of the lost?